0: Endowment for the arts and receives part of its funding that way. Um, I am so excited to have Shamine here. Um, we started the Visiting Curator series after looking at things that had been just tremendously successful, and one of those was having guest artists for Flux Night do studio visits with local artists. And from that, some amazing things happened. And so we decided that we didn't that we could do that just independently of anything else. And when we developed the program, she was the first person that I thought of. Um, Many of y'all in this room remember Max Anderson being here at Emory. And when we were starting Flux Projects, he said, you need to check out this really amazing curator from the Whitney, who's starting something kind of similar out in Los Angeles. And so I've followed her work ever since. She's the first person I thought of. So she, Started an amazing organization called LAND, Los Angeles Nomadic Division. If you're not following them, you should. Um, prior to that, she was an associate curator at the Whitney, where she co curated the 2004 2008 Whitney Biennials. And I'm going to let her take it from here, but thank you for being here. Um, I should say we're also supported by individual donors who contribute to us in amounts that range from to over $10,000, and we value all of those equally. Um, A commitment of any amount to our programming means so much, but also to you. You could spend your Saturdays in a lot of ways, so thank you for showing us with your presence that programming like this is valuable to you, and it's an encouragement to me and my board members that are here to keep doing it, so thank you. Thank you.
1: with uh, contemporary artists, commissioning projects and so on. I want to start off by saying I really, especially in this wonderful and more intimate space, I really, really encourage you to interrupt me. I mean, just shout out if you want or put your hand up if you'd like while I'm talking because I'd love to speak to what you want to hear more about and not just give you, um, you know, my standard lecture when I could tailor it better to what you're interested in delving into a bit more hearing more, hearing more detail on. So, um, as Ann mentioned, I started uh, LAND about nine years ago now. Um, I moved to Los Angeles in order to do so, coming from to Whitney, and um, sort of a weird move in many people's eyes, but for me, it was very natural progression in the things that I was interested in um, curatorially uh, at the time or I had kind of evolved into thinking about. Uh, the 2008 Biennial was somewhat instrumental in, in the conceptualizing of LAND, We were working with so many artists at that time who worked across multiple media or had worked in ways that we were calling expanded practice at the time, for it's a terrible term, but it was the best we could come up with, at the moment where one was not just a uh, sculptor or a a, a photographer or someone, but had many other parts of their practice that were equally important and and, um, equivalent to any object-based practice as well. And we were struggling to capture, in that way, to capture the totality of an artist's work and thinking simultaneity of so many of these uh, ways of working, we, and, and to do so, we took over uh, a building called the Park Avenue Armory. I don't know if any of you actually had a chance to see that aspect of it, but it was basically the two parallel biennials. So the biennial in the, in the main galleries, uh, where th- everything was presented, of course, in a more sort of traditional manner, and, and the biennial that existed, all the same artists. Um, had the opportunity to, to do uh, specific, site-specific proposals for the Park Avenue Army itself, and these uh, very bizarre historical rooms and the giant drill hall and so on, a really completely different feel, of course, from the uh, White Cube um, Whitney galleries. And this was an opportunity for them to explore those other aspects of practice and have them be presented, um, again, on a equivalent level. So the more formative, interactive, durational, musical, whatever it might be, um, uh, so or systems based organization there and that um, kind of led that to the thinking around what land could do to serve artists um, Los Angeles is a, a city of, of many 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 artists because it has extraordinary art schools and the artists tend to stay and there's a, a very involved artist community supportive back and forth across generations and across Different types of work and so on, and they were already so many of the artists that were already kind of doing these kinds of projects. LA still has a kind of wild west feel to no it. Everyone hates when I say that; it's really true. And they just kind of um, do things, like so they'll just take over a storefront or do a performance under a bridge or whatever it might be. Um, and and my thought was that land could be an opportunity to kind of amplify all of those practices and efforts and bring that to a more institutional um, presentation, of a broader audience, of course, because in, the, in that case. Um, you know, a lot of those artists are mostly doing it for each other, for their community specifically. So, uh, Los Angeles was seemed like an, an interesting natural place to do it, one because of the many artists, but also, oddly enough, for a city with so many institutions and organizations that didn't have a public art um, organization that specifically focused on commissioning, um, kind of museum quality, site-specific, contemporary art works in unique spaces. And also that uh, was free, because so, that's another uh, significant portion of our vision. And mission is that everything we do is free and open to the public. And then the other side of, of the way I think of our mission is the, what we think um, in terms of the public itself, that all audiences deserve this opportunity to engage with innovative contemporary art in their day-to-day experience and kind of how that does shift the way that you engage and really can um, experience directly the artwork. So this is a very boring slide, I just realized I should probably move to the next one. Um, this, um, so we always do, our projects are always in a different site, we've never repeated a site and you'll see the range of what uh, formats and what I'm talking about as I walk through a few of the projects. Uh, but we do have an office and that has one of our only semi-permanent, I that's gonna, it's gonna be there forever. Um, wall painting, she refuses to call it a mural. She's very anti mural as a, as a concept. But in any case, by staircase. So this is just where we base our operations. Um, and that's, you know, at the end of the day, it, we realized it was very necessary to have some physical space where people could find us because it's actually, and um, you know, I was curious, as I talked to Anne about this a bit, how it was, it's it was kind of difficult at first for people to wrap their head around what we do. And how, and because it takes, every project takes a different format and has a different space, they have to go to a different LA is a very, very spread out community. Um, so you can, you know, from one land project to the next, it might be an hour, an hour and a half to get to. And so it becomes kind of confusing for people like, what is your you know, central identity? And that's part of what we were trying to fracture a bit, and have a much more dispersed identity, but still be able to tell people who we are and what we do. So that's just our office with a beautiful wall painting, so I wanted to show that. Um, next slide, please. Um, thus far we've done, I think, a uh, More, almost 100 projects at this point of various different scales. We have essentially three different uh, scales of project: the longer term, usually multi-site, multi-artists, almost like a big group show across time and space. And I'll show you some examples of that. Our second scale is more, um, I guess, traditional in that you go to a single space to see one thing, or usually either a group show or one artist. So. monographic projects or thematic shows. And then our third scale is the most immediate and responsive, and specifically so, and those tend to be more performative or kind of laboratory-esque or um, um, ongoing durational things. And that's really a way to, to allow us to be uh, extremely nimble and respond directly to an artist's idea or this vision when we can, and sometimes because a space will come up and we just want it, it's a really cool opportunity. We want to be able to. Do something right away. So from the immediate to the long-term um, planning, uh, we try to balance that out. So there's always kind of all of those things happening in any given season. This was part of the, that first big, large-scale show that we did. It was actually our launch show. Um, it was called Via, and it was eight different artists from um, from Mexico. And we specifically decided everybody expected us to do LA artists, of course, it's our first year as land. Um, so we thought it would be more interesting to do. From, <laughs> A group of artists who had whose work had an interesting relationship to, to aspects of LA and the city, um, ideas about transit and exchange, um, all of that, which is inherent in the title via, but in different ways in the eight different projects that happened over the course of a year. Um, this is just one example. And this is, I I, I like this one in particular because this is not at all what he proposed for the project. And it's a great <laughs> example of what happens when you work, um, <laughs> when you work with Contemporary artists and Commission commissioned projects, is you have to constantly be evolving to whatever your limitations or new developments might be. And quite often it it, 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 it can, if the artist is open to it, it can actually kind of enhance their idea or refine the vision or bring them in a new direction. And so that can be an exciting um, way to work with an artist curatorially. You just have to be flexible enough to move your thinking around it. And of course, be flexible with all the other aspects of it or of the organization. But this artist, Morris, um, the reason it wasn't the project he wanted to do is because he was a- actually denied his visa to come and, and install and do the, the performance and, and sculptures that he wanted to do on site. So what he decided to do um, was to kind of focus on this idea of, of exclusion and separation and who has the authority to do that, and so on. So, what, the, what these are, this, this was in collaboration. Our first few projects, we collaborated with a lot of the arts organizations very deliberately, again, just to kind of show how art practice could help enhance that, but not be, we're not anti institutional in any way. It's not that kind of 70s gesture of outside the institution, but rather more um, how to better show the totality of three dimensionality of arts practice. So, this was a collaboration um, with Mocha at the Geffen. And these are all, as you can probably tell, all on the floor. When they first started out, they were just white. So they just look like white carpet, kind of, uh, or placard um, at the entrance where you walk into the space. So he was really interested in this point of um, where you go into the acceptable space and where you're outside the acceptable space. So again, all of this coming from the um, issue around his visa. And as people walked on <clears throat> the white boards, they were actually coated with this kind of rubberized material. Um, these portraits began to emerge that were began to emerge specifically as the dirt from people's feet got caught on the rubber. And so they kind of looked very ghostly at first and became more and more and more precise um, over the months that it was up. These are all portraits of um, Mexican immigrants who lived in America for you know, upwards of 2,500 years and then were deported. And so their identities being without you know, essentially erased. And so his gesture was to kind of bring back their um, their identity, their personage, and their existence in Los Angeles back to the site where they had spent most of their lives. Um, in addition, he actually had the silks the visa rejection letters silkscreened on the um, loading outdoors of Moco. I don't think you have a picture of um, next, but uh, um, as a kind of again in my means of like who has the authority to decide what is acceptable, what is brought into um, public view and what is erased from public view. So it was also a bit of a comment on the you know, the art role as well in that aspect, so. Um, next slide, please. Uh, this is, I think I'm gonna get into this space where I talk far too long about the specific project, so I'm gonna to try to do it a little more quickly. This is just another example from that big group show, Teresa Mergoyez, um, which we placed at LACMA. Um, some of you might know her work. It can be a little bit unnerving to people because she quite often works with um, morgue water. Uh, She's from Cuyacan which just the city of Mexico that where I think it had the highest murder rate for many years running, partly because a lot of the cartels are based there. And she worked at the morgue for a time and collected the water that was used to wash the tables after um, a body was brought through and would save it and um, cast it into, well, she has done different things with this, in this case, cast it into these sort of minimalist forms that are simultaneously Utility uh, like one can sit on them and recline on them. They're space of peace and reflection, but they're also um, intended to be to reference of kind of tombstone or sort of moment of, of uh, memorial. At the end of the day, um, this was a, a pretty exciting trip because she too was denied her visa, and so we had to drive. We drove to Tijuana and met her there to collect the morgue water from her and to bring it back to the production house um, to have it uh, have it installed into the. Pardon so me. That
2: was pretty Sorry. Uh, oh, go ahead. You know, I, I never knew it was that hard to get into the U.S. Oh, why? Are, why are well, in getting...
1: specifically, it can be very difficult <laughs> for artists because they the, they don't consider that a justifiable job, right? Right. and so oh. they think that you're not going to come back. So that's what, um, or that, it, I, I, so it had something to do with that. The letter that was returned oh. said that um, that the position wasn't. Like, his situation in Mexico wasn't concrete enough that they could anticipate his return. Yeah. So, um, And Teresa has had trouble because of the material she often brings like this. So we didn't declare it, for example. <laughs> we just drove it back. <laughs> um, and any case, so next slide, please. Another project that was much more um, time-based, durational, uh, and again, very site-specific uh, uh, by Gonzalo de Brija. This is a, uh, a series of three films called "The Distance Between You and Me," essentially uh, showing artists running off into the into a traditional kind of like California landscapes, the desert, the mountains, and um, and uh, the sea, the beach, I believe. And um, we were able to do this. This uh, again, one of those things that comes up specifically with a uh, site like Los Angeles along Sunset Boulevard. We chose these digital billboards where they give away a minute, an hour to um, a, a PSA, a public art service announcement or a charity or something like that, and stagger them such that you could actually watch the whole film. It was just a minute each, um, of course, but on Sunset Boulevard you rarely move more than a few feet in a minute, so <laughs> you're actually able to see the whole film. And then we produced a performance of him running in the distance on Sunset as the fourth another film so a lot of the projects we do even when we're using existing work can actually function as um, sort of a fulcrum to create new work and kind of inspire new ideas um, next slide please this is an example of a so uh, as is obvious we are based in Los Angeles but we also do projects all around the country and actually recently our first international project uh, a year and a half ago And this was a pretty extraordinary opportunity um, to to do a show on the Flagler Memorial Island, which is a man-made island off the Miami coast um, in Florida that has, it was originally, you know, perfectly round and it has one of those giant penile obelisks on it in the area of Henry Flagler, who kind of essentially founded Miami, um, but it over time has been sort of rec- reclaimed by the natural world and it's it's scrubby and messy and um, not in any way refined any longer, but it's a very, very popular site for teenagers doing illicit things and families having barbecues on the beach and so on. The only way to get there is by boat. So, and it's just, it's just off the coast, but you do have to take, like, I mean, you could take a rowboat there. It's that close, but you still uh, need to get to the water. So, we did a, a, um, a, an exhibition just simply called The Island. Um, part of it, we, all of the work was really kind of about this idea of disappearance and dispersal because we, in the end of the day, the Parks Committee, it's technically a national park, only allowed us to have the island for one full day, so we installed. I guess it would, yeah, one full day. So we installed, um, and then the show opened. Was open for about five hours, and then we deinstalled throughout the middle of the night to get get it out of there. So we actually decided to embrace that limitation and make that really the uh, idea of the show. That you know, in some senses, for many people, are, did that happen? Did it actually exist? A sense of disappearance and what the story is around that. Um, became a, uh, a significant part of a lot of the work. This is <coughs> Jack Pearson, many of you probably know his work, um, uh, fame, which is uh, the letters in that word, sort of scattered, looking like broken signage. Um, he often works with this kind of material. And then, next slide please. There were also a lot of you know other kinds of sculptural, performative, video, music works, things like that. So you'll see a, you see a performance by Brodie Condon Um, In the water there where they were, it was essentially an all-day ritual. They actually started earlier than the whole project because they had to be there all day, sort of um, uh, convening the cosmos to bless the island, essentially. Um, And then on the bottom, Terrence Coe, these uh, lovers, I believe is actually the name of that piece, um, the skeletons that sort of washed up on the deserted beach, as as you can see. Um, uh, the implication of this, of course, loss and decay, but still, they're still holding hands as they lie there. Next slide, please. A couple years after that, we did um, one of these bigger, big, larger scale, long-term projects in Marfa, Texas. Again, most of you are probably familiar with Marfa as a, you know, the site of the Chinati Foundation, the Judd Foundation, and the Extraordinary Minimalist Works, having made it a sort of art mecca, but at the same time it's, you know, a regular high desert town as well, Um, and um, supports now more contemporary art, but at the time it really surprised me that there was so much art there, but very little in the way of contemporary projects. So we did this, I think it was about a nine month long project with eight artists, commissioning, doing site-specific work on, uh, around the city, or town, I guess. <coughs> this is Andrea Barrison, she's in Um And on, it's a, a mural on the on the facade of the Blackwell School, which was originally, now it's a museum, but it was originally a um, assimilationist school, and it was a way for the, uh, basically for the white folks to teach the brown ones how not to be so brown. So, of course, it's no longer, it's now defunct. Um, Luckily, and or thankfully I should say and it's a museum but they wanted to kind of reclaim the, um, the site of language. One of the things that ha- that they looked up that they found in the archives at the school uh, is that it used to have these um, language rituals where they would burn their like uh, sentences in Spanish and like bury them in the uh, front yard so as a way to put to rest your language and start speaking English that was basically a um, uh, process that the teachers used to put kids through. And so this is a way to kind of reclaim that language and, and um, <coughs> put the original words um, of uh, these two writers back onto the school and make it part of their history present again. Um, um, sorry, yes, go ahead. So
0: in the beginning, you said you were collaborating with the artists as a curator, and then you went on to give some samples about life limitations, like the visa that's happening, and the, you know, landscape, and the parks and So, what kind of input do you do put in there
2: when you're collaborating?
1: Yeah. Uh, when I say, you no, know, I I said that I, collab- we collaborate with a lot of institutions. I don't consider myself an artist, I'm a curator. So, yeah. I, the, the artist's vision is paramount. The way in which we work with them is to help, I would like to think to help, you know, shape it, produce it in a way that shows the concept that they're trying to present and with public art projects and especially ones in, in unusual spaces a lot of that is to try to figure out how to fit what they want to do ideally into the realities of the situation and how to help keep fight for their, their aspects that need to remain and be flexible in other ways and sort of help kind of the same way one would um, you know shape a movie production where you're not the writer you're not the actor but you're the person trying to <laughs> make it happen, put all the together. Um, Public art projects of course also have a huge uh, addition of logistics as if they aren't enough in just the art space to begin with you also have you know a lot they're going to sound very boring but these are the the heart uh, um, and soul of getting things to happen whether it's you know the permits or getting the audience on board or the community um, councils to agree or having access to certain kinds of information or spaces or being able to change the space things like that um, that really ends up being uh, significant part of how we can realize the work and you know frankly I can always and one of the reasons we wanted to work this closely and this you know deeply with the artists is that I always whenever I see a public art project that just feels like kind of plopped there or kind of stuck in or, or crammed into an existing situation without the consideration of the context or the site um, I can feel it you know and I can, it never feels as like naturally present as a well curated project should be and so that's kind of the, we hope, the you know, service we're able to provide essentially at the end of the day. You next slide, please. Uh, one other project mm-hmm. in Marfa, this was um, out in the high desert, um, obviously farther out of town, by the artist Garth Weiser, who um, created this painting, this sort of lone sculptural painting, out in the desert, and its life was really the process of it um, being changed by the very harsh conditions of the high desert out there. Um, and each part of it was documented so that it could continue to exist because every, every stage of its life was actually part of the artist's process. And so he really wanted to have this sense of, you know, uh, temporality and time passing and, and the impact of, um, of the physical elements. Next slide, please. And again, there were six other projects but I'm trying to give you some brief. <laughs> brief sense of, of working with the landscape there and how much the, the, f- the physical site impacted the Marfa projects this on a totally different vein is um, a one of the sort of second scale that I mentioned where it's uh, uh, a single show and a usually in, a, in a one space either a monographic or a group show this was a, a group show called painting in place where I and mean, this is a historic and preserved bank former bank in downtown Los Angeles um, next slide please so you can see um, that you know, it's largely been, you know, all the original details have been kept and you can actually see where the teller desks were and all of that. So it has it kind of retains its history in an interesting way. Um, and all of the artists were in, invited to create paintings, but um, we weren't actually allowed to hang anything on the walls directly. So we thought that was kind of an interesting <laughs> challenge for painters. Um, you know, <laughs> why not make it more difficult for yourself? In any case, um, but really to kind of explore that sense of like, what does painting mean in these kinds of other situations, it's kind of breaking out of the standard frame or wall hanging and so on. So again, things that artists have been exploring for a long time, but a theme that we can bring together in a unique way in this site. Um, so and did each person
2: figure out their own support? Sorry? Just looking at yeah. each artist figure out their own support. Essentially,
1: yeah, because all of the supports are actually part of the pieces and these Particular cases, um, and then we figured out some tricky ways to like hang from banisters and like not use. And we just weren't allowed to go into any wall because it's a historic site. Um, so I think there were thirty artists in that show. The other side of the bank was actually next slide. Please. I think I have a picture of it. Yeah, so you can see as you move farther into the bank, it was less <coughs> preserved essentially. Um, and so this backside space was kind of much more falling apart, kind of decrepit, and some of the artists selected to be in that space for, to kind of work with that kind of um, uh, sense of decay uh, that you can see going on here, so. Um, next slide. This is, I have three slides for this because this isn't uh, going to make much sense right off the bat, but this is a project um, uh, about two years from start to finish that we worked on with an artist in Fritz Haig. Whose work is uh, ongoing about kind of uh, um, community activism, kind of these social environmental projects, um, addressing the histories of places and the ones that have been covered or kind of eliminated from sites. So, in this particular case, this Wildflowering LA project, um, he cites it as a collaboration of 50 artists because each site was uh, uh, selected, well, he was applied for, I guess I should say, by someone who had uh, part of their property. Um, The requirements was that it had to be visible to the public area, and so that if it was a private property, you had to be able to be on the sidewalk like this. But most of them were sites like this where they're kind of unused um, public land. And the uh, intention of the project was to bring the native um, uh, flora back to Los Angeles. the image that we most of us have of LA which is actually what it looks like most places the green lawns and the palm trees and so on most of that is non-native um, flora and has been and most of the original uh, vegetation has been removed to make it look prettier and more in like that picture so this is we worked worked in collaboration with the Theater Payne Foundation who also are committed to this idea of returning native plants to their proper micro, microclimates and Prince and the 50 folks that, um, that he selected who applied for it with their sites and the commitment was a full year on their behalf to follow, thank you, You the next slide. So here's what it looked like, not that site, but here's another site that what it looked like after they followed the whole process of returning the um, proper seed mixes to their area. So the Theodore Payne Foundation designed the seed mix, there's something like 17 different microclimates in Los Angeles, it's in LA County, it's kind of a crazy, did so many distinctions because of the, you know, the ocean, the valleys, the mountains, and so on, and what that creates. So each seed mix had to be specifically done for that microclimate, um, and then tended, of course, throughout the course of the year, and then collected again, the seeds collected at the end, because um, uh, they're annual, so they had to replant them. And the idea was that to create this kind of long-term commitment, and some of them are still doing it. We go by the sites every now and then, but um, many of them didn't, because of course it is. Something to do, uh, to maintain, but in any case, just to give you a sense of this sort of very involved collaborative community project that's- Are neighbors complaining? Sorry? Are
2: the neighbors complaining? <laughs> no, the neighbors,
1: everybody loved it. We had, this was actually probably one of our most popular projects ever. Yeah. I mean, probably in general these days with the interest in kind of in the environment, it would be popular anywhere, but LA has had a long standing, you know, uh, community of people really invested in environmental in, in activism. So it's, um, yeah. complaining
2: my neighborhood.
1: This was called Wildflower LA. So that's you can read barely read the sign, but that signage was of course inspired by kind of trail signage, natural parks, and so on. So everyone was required to have their sign with their site, and there was a very elaborate interactive map. And we did bike tours and workshops, and, and an exhibition at the end of, uh, that kind of brought together all of the people who participated in it, and so on. So it was a really it was a really exciting way to kind of activate an audience in a really different interactive manner. Did the artist come to you with this project, or? He did, um, well he and I, he was in my 2008 biennial, and so I was already familiar with his work, and he's kind of, most of his projects that he takes on tend to be these kind of long-term investigations of history and kind of excavation of the past and, 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 and preceding situations. So we actually had talked about it for the first time before Lance started and mentioned the idea. So in my catching up with him over time, he brought this, up again mm-hmm. uh, to see if we would be interested to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, it appears that you're very well funded. I was wondering what <laughs> your budget is and where your funds come. I love from. when people say that because it makes me feel <laughs> I good, said and it's also awesome. <laughs> I appreciate. I appreciate that, <laughs> the um, air quotes. Um, I think we do pretty well for a young organization. I'm quite proud of our our supporters and funders and our efforts in that respect. But we do a lot on. A lot less than we should. I would love to see our budgets be more realistic to what they really take. But the great thing about that is that um, we do that by, and Anne mentioned this before, we all help each other out. So um, other the production companies we work with give us major discounts. But we usually can convince the venues to um, waive any fees. Usually, sometimes they participate in like the support things that are easy for them but hard for us, like the daily security and things like that for an indoor site. So wherever we can, we have in-kind support, and I think that makes that's probably makes the biggest difference in um, um, what we're able to do. But it's also my team is extraordinary. I mean, they just won't stop until they get it right. So, um, so how, who are your major funders? Uh, well, there are most of our funding is individual donors, and um, we have a couple of family foundations that are individual, you know, connections that kind of thing that that give substantial funds, but. Most of it is small, relatively small funding from a lot of people. Uh, we do very well with grants and foundations when we have certain kinds of projects on board, like this received a uh, pretty substantial grant from the Irvine Foundation, because they're particularly interested in community-based projects, so things like that. It sort of depends on the curatorial direction of the of the idea, um, which things get more grants versus more individual. Um, but yeah, in general, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, LA, despite what you might see, because it has so many artists, and. Institutions is not a terrifically philanthropic city compared to others that I've um, been around, and so it, it does take a lot of uh, cultivation and focus. And you know, at the end of the day, it makes sense because what we try to do, on all respects, is uh, you know, we, we like our team to be with us for a long time so they can learn and develop too. I, I like to think that we have the artists do that with their projects, and it, it, in turn, it also seems that we do that with our um, cultivation efforts as well. We spend it's rather than a lot of people occasionally or the first time we try to spend as much time really getting people involved access to the artists um, involved in the ideas uh, and having a sense of what public art and free art can do um, in a community so that they become kind of like we call them the land family to give that sort of sense and so what our infrastructure church sure. um, do you have, have a full do you have well, how many people are on your staff? It's four full-time, and currently we have two part-time, but that expands or contracts depending on what uh, is the immediate need for the project. And then what I like to call like our land outside staff. So we always use the same designer I've been working with for 20 years. For example, it's not everything you've seen, any reference on um, our website and so on and so forth, The same printers, you know, we try to do cultivated long-term relationships with the other departments that we would have if we were to be a larger institution. But we want the team, the, the internal team, to remain small uh, so that it can be as nimble as possible. So it's this way of being able to like change our minds and move things around and, and reschedule and follow the artists, which is, I think, it becomes much more difficult. Well, actually, I don't think I know because at the Whitney it was very hard to shift gears um, just because it was too large of an institution for that kind of respons- responsiveness to happen. So that was a pretty deliberate choice there. I think it should be a little bit bigger. You're talking about fundraising, particularly grants.
2: Um, mm-hmm.
1: what, what is the length of the projects you're working on? Well, it really runs the gamut, and also for us, um, they also change their schedules all the time, which is uh, the, mo- the biggest challenge for grants. It's not so much the time frame, but that a show that we think we're going to do in January, for various reasons, we're going to push till August, and it's something that we really do, um, you know, without a- any compunction, because that's part of what we. think <coughs> our advantage is that we don't have a single space, we can make it happen when it's supposed to happen, not force it into an empty gallery because we haven't had an empty gallery. So um, our, our the longest scale is probably the current project we have, the PSC project at Pozing Gallery. that we were talking about yesterday. Um, we've been quite literally working on that for four or five years, although as I mentioned, the idea was 10 years ago. Um, and But some can happen in two weeks. If there's a, if it's a quick idea or um, something testing out, or we get a great option for a space that needs to happen right away, yeah. so it can be anything within that. So with, with grants and foundations, again, we tend to focus on the longer term ones that we have a better grasp on the full schedule. Um, you know, I wish grants and foundation did more operating support because it really is the unsexy stuff that keeps it going. And they, sometimes people forget yeah, you have to pay the rent and pay your staff and things like that. <laughs> so anyway, um, I'll keep going. Just I think there's another image of this. So here's another example of one pre and post, which um, I think is pretty amazing. And um, next slide, please. I just wanted to show you a couple of the other. These are the more uh, sort of the third scale. That's the more immediate, performative. Um, off, you know, equally, I think equally important, certainly to our mission and what we're trying to do. This. Top one um, is a, uh, uh, a project with an artist named Jamie Ross, a young um, fellow who I came across was just excited by this ritual performance he wanted to perform um, on the top of uh, Mount Gabriel, which is near, just outside of LA. Um, we actually had an astonishing audience for that. I was really surprised who was willing to hike up there with us and do it, but um, it was more about the point of the doing, and uh, so that was just a plus that so many people came. And then. On the bottom, Michelle and Myra, which was an um, interactive um, portraiture uh, ongoing process. She does uh, her version of like the Warhol screen test, essentially, um, here with, where she dresses people up and has them do the, the screen test on site. So anyone who came to that event could sign up to participate as one of the portraits. So we often have that kind of um, event as well, um, ongoing, single night, um, sometimes a few days. Next slide. There are just a couple of other examples of these pneumatic nights. We we unify them under that series title so people ca- don't get too lost in kind of all these crazy details that tend to happen and because they don't have a lot of build out. So they become familiar with nomadic nights happening and they just go to that. They don't know don't usually know who the artist is. And oftentimes we'll do them pneumatic nights in a unusual architectural space. In this case it was at a, a Lautner house. Um, L.A. has extraordinary domestic architecture, which I actually hadn't been quite as aware of before I moved there. Um, so we're always trying to get people who have those wonderful historical sites to open them up to us, even if just for a night. Yes? How do you market your work? Uh, well, we do all the standard things, basically. We do um, you know, e glass we have a very involved website uh, because we assume that most people aren't gonna see most things. So we wanna make sure you have as much access to that as possible. Um, a lot of social media, um, press, we have this, you know, more traditional formats, we do press releases, um, you know, press tickets, calls, <coughs> conferences, that kind of thing. Um, occasionally, we'll advertise, but usually only if they, if they give it to us for free or significantly, <laughs> because these days it's, I mean, you can get your word out in a much more um, facile way with social media, um, especially for these shorter term projects. So, um, in any case, this was two, two artists, Carl Handel teaching you how to make boeuf um, bourguignon, and on the right, is uh, Lisa Ann Auerbeck help asking everyone to, this was one of my favorites actually, a lot of her work centers around knitting and knitting sort of like uh, political um, ideologies into her clothing, uh, the clothing that she makes, and this was a quilt and knitted blanket actually rather, and this is the pattern for it, and it's an exorcism blanket, so you were to write on there somebody you wanted exorcised from your life or from your <laughs> memory and so on, so that was, that was kind of a fun uh, community contact too. Okay, next please. This was a part of a five artist project in Washington, D.C. Oops, sorry. Uh, that's okay, um, fi- uh, five artist project, the um, the, uh, um, I can't remember their official title, but basically their arts council supported this, invited a certain number of curators to come and do projects all around the city and they, that was kind of amazing because they helped facilitate the sites and of course all the permitting. Where was like this? This is in D.C., D.C. Washington, D.C. So this uh, is just one of the this is Glenn Kaino, um, and this is part of an ongoing project he's been working on pre this and post, now he's actually doing a movie at this point, uh, this piece is called uh, the bridge, and it's hard to see at first. Maybe in the next slide I can show it more clearly. Uh, a lot of people asked if it was like a skeleton or like the backbone of a dinosaur or things like that. But what it actually is comprised of: the slats of the bridge are actually a cast arm of Tommy Smith, who um, I'm sure you're all familiar with him, um, who uh, uh, in nineteen sixty nine Olympics in Mexico uh, went out barefoot to end the black card gesture. Uh, along with his, um, his uh, co-athlete, co medalist, I guess I should say. Um, and he has, and they're actually working on a documentary about this uh, notion of iconic gesture and, and history, and of course, um, issues around race and power, um, cultural appropriation and things like that. Um, that is going to be a longer term project as well. Um, but this was just kind of this beautiful tracing of that, of the power of um, gesture, sort of a sense of it passing through history and, and its evolution through time. Mm. Next. Are they cast bronze? Um, they, I believe they're actually plaster, but then they're um, um, gilded, yeah. So it wouldn't be too, too, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it did end up being quite, I mean, as you might imagine, each one of those has four points of a monofilament. So it was a Nightmare mm-hmm. of engineering, I <laughs> have to say, but our dealers were fantastic and had a lot of patience. So thank kind God. Of Artist name again? Glenn Kino. Kaino. K A I N O. Next slide, please. So, this is the map of a project that probably our longest term in its actual existence, two years, uh, two full years. Uh, the Menomis Destiny Billboard Project. Um, deliberately. Stupid title for, for a loaded concept, but in any case, it was an, a project that was instigated by the artist Zoe Crocher. She came to me and asked if I could help that help her, because she wanted to do a group show, of three or four billboards um, in this part of I-10 in LA. We started talking about it, and I was listening to the ideas behind what she wanted to do with it, suggested that we do it across the whole country, and so basically this became, um, and that's where the sort of notion of a Destiny, the Methodist before billboard project came about. And it went it moved east to west and across, it, the easiest to think about in terms of 10s. It was across Interstate 10, 10 artists, uh, 10 billboards each in 10 different cities. And they we, we refer to them as chapters because they unfolded sequentially in that way. So it started in Jacksonville, and then as you can see, went across the points, um, you know, Mobile, New Orleans, Houston, San Antonio, Tucson, Phoenix, and culminating in LA two years later and where we hosted a big weekend bringing all the artists there, and organizing a series of programming, exhibitions, talks, and panels kind of around the whole experience and, and other ideas that came out of it. So next slide, please. I'm gonna show you a few of the of the billboards. This is the first, se- one of the first series um, uh, by um, Shana Lutger um, that was in Jacksonville. One of the interesting things, this came up the other day in dinner, is that I expected everybody to be fighting for specific cities. We had picked the 10 cities if, kind of across the country and we sort of expected everyone to fight over specific ones but it, as it turned out oddly enough everybody picked there was no contest at all. Every, each of the ten artists picked one and nobody else picked that one so they all got what they wanted um, which was pretty great and for, and for different reasons that I couldn't we couldn't possibly have known about so that's also another you know one of the more fascinating aspects of working on these kinds of commissions is you, you know where the idea is, but you never know where it's really going to go or what's going to come out of it. So she has spent significant time in Jacksonville because her mother happens to live there. And she's spent a, um, a lot of time at the historical archives investigating it as I think it was like the largest port city for a long time in, um, in the United States. And so and there's a lot of um, both great big and small things um, about those histories that she was unpacking there. So next slide, please. And then this is another example of, of one that had, that surprised me, this is Mario Ibarra Jr. Who's an artist from East L.A. who is very much about working with his um, community and he runs a, a school essentially, <coughs> um, artist school for for kids in his neighborhood who don't have access to art education called Slanguage, which is an amazing ongoing project. Um, and he's been creating this many decade now long project called um, um, uh, barrio Aesthetics, and basically it's a picture, he takes constant pictures of his neighborhood and, and his friends and community and so on and so forth, and then uses that that enormous archive to kind of turn it into many of his other works. So he picked Mobile, Alabama. Again, startling me, so when I asked him why, he said, because when his father, when he was young, his father used to work as a summer laborer, essentially, at the port. And I guess you can come as a seasonal worker at that time. And they would live there for like a, two months. And um, Mobile is a pretty segregated city then, and it kind of still is. And it was the first time he'd ever been around, been the only like brown person in the room with white people. And it was kind of a very startling memory for him, or a very startling experience, something he uh, really the <coughs> evolution of his childhood, and something he wanted to return to and kind of unpack again. So this was a really great collaboration. In each of the cities, I should mention, we. Uh, made an effort to collaborate with some organization in that city, um, uh, invited the artists to propose activations, or if they didn't want to, then we would design some programming around it. um, In order to, again, not just be kind of passing through, but at least do our best to kind of capture some um, present audience and local audience and, and give some time to relate to the audiences and communities that were there and seeing, hopefully, and wondering what these things were that were going in their city. So this was one of the more elaborate ones of them because after we collaborated with the Center for Living Arts, they have a different title now, but um, with this, so during the opening, Mario came out and did a number of workshops with kids like he quite often does around his work. But then after that, he came back when the the billboard time frame was done. We kept all, we had the companies promise to take them down in, in full. So we kept all 10 and Mario had a kind of residency in the Center for Living Arts for a few weeks making them into, next slide please, um, a whole new set of of artworks. So this is one example of the the sculptural works. He made. out of, he did these architectural pieces, um, another that was almost kind of like a um, a tent or kind of a a skylight kind of scenario. And so and installed that as an exhibition and another opportunity to then again um, add additional programming and presence. That was one of my favorites for that reason. Um, and I'll go through the others pretty quickly just so you get a feel for the different, this is Stanford figures in New Orleans. Um, one of the things that was a challenge I should, should mention is that we wanted to, because of billboards are advertising, everyone is used to having it tell you where to look it up and who it is and what it's advertising for. And so we were really trying to juggle how to give people some information but not um, have, it, have the text, first of all, of course, be over the actual artwork, but so that it was as minimal as possible. So I know this looks kind of big, but this stripe at the bottom is about one-third the size of what they recommend for minimal viewing, because we really wanted it to be like, you see the image, and then maybe you're going to try to find out what it is after, and you might have to work a little for it so that the artwork could be the artwork and not read as an advertisement. But you know, again, these are sometimes the kind of um, things that you have to juggle and challenge throughout the way, so next slide. Um, this is Eve Fowler in Houston. These are kind of an amazing series of text pieces that kind of unfolded sequentially um, on the highway as you approached Houston, um, a little bit like those old grill um, cream ones, and some of you might be familiar with them that were actually, oh, yes, sorry, burn shaped ones that, um, that uh, actually followed a narrative as you we went through. Now, these didn't, these are all excerpts from Gertrude Stein's uh, Tender Buttons, but um, <laughs> it gives the implication that it's kind of um, creating this sort of concrete and into that we actually collaborated with the community poetry workshop um, to do readings and, and work with the writers there. Next slide. <laughs> this one uh, this is Daniel Small in uh, just outside El Paso. Um, and this was kind of a, and then again, many unexpected things coming out in public projects, which I'm sure Anne you can speak to, that's okay. Um, this was, uh, this he works with these kind of, um, old movie sets that he goes to, that usually that are like abandoned out in the desert and they're like falling apart. He kind of creates these sort of apocryphal histories around them, as if they were like ancient civilizations or so on. And he made up this this writing that's based on some um, uh, editorial markings. Uh, <laughs> I guess most of you don't have that anymore, now that we have track changes, but if anybody right. you know, remembers old editorial marks, you might recognize some of them there. But after it went up, there was this uproar that weirdly caught the eye of, I guess. Uh, that was on all the international um, news networks for a little while that people thought that this was a, a terrorist message <laughs> 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 and um, and there was a lot of outcry as to what you know the Arabs were trying to say here or something which <laughs> seems sort of like if you if you were doing that, I don't know putting out a poll board <laughs> in this
0: spot. Yeah, right. exactly.
1: I don't know it. So anyway, it's, it, was, it, it did precipitate some interesting conversations in this course, but certainly ones we did not expect. <laughs> Next slide, please. This is Zoe Kroschner, so I just wanted to show you this because this is the original idea. This is what precipitated it all. Um, Zoe's uh, project outside Palm Springs, where she is kind of bringing back this luxurious um, flora and fauna um, to, to the, the very arid desert, and it culminated in this living sculpture of what you see here, um, that she's been working on these sort of living sculptures that then kind of die over the course of the exhibition, and so the changes of that um, death and decay is a kind of part of the whole process of the piece. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Zoe is the, sort of my co-curator on this project throughout. Next. And, oh, by the way, and this is the last one, uh, last artist, um, I skipped a couple along the way, but um, uh, Matthew Brannan, who, too. Chose LA. He was the only one, <laughs> which was interesting. And uh, um, sorry if we go back. And this was uh, was on concurrently to that programmatic weekend I was mentioning. And we did an exhibition of one of each of the billboards, which you know they're about like 20 by 50 feet. So it was really quite interesting to have them then in an exhibition space because you're so used to seeing them that way, you don't really have a sense of the scale. So we managed to have someone donate a big warehouse where we were able to put one of each of the 10. Um, groups um, all up, and it's just it, it's a totally different physical experience. Engage with the images in that way. So that was pretty cool. Okay, um, and that brings me to our current large-scale project, which is a, a part of the Getty's PST effort. Some of you might be aware of that. It's something like seventy exhibitions all throughout LA County and a bit up uh, south and north of that too. Um, they did it once before, which we also participated in about five years ago, and this one is called PST L.A.L.A., uh, LA, or La, which is very, very stupid, but it's <laughs> a, but it's a great concept. So basically, it's investigating. It's at Los Angeles, Latin America. So it's really unpacking all different kinds of histories and, and present-day um, themes and communities and concerns and so on and so forth um, throughout the whole county. And, you know, L.A. County is, I think, Forty-eight percent Latinx now, if I am remembering that correctly. So it's you know obviously very significant community and histories in the city, but both throughout our our country and, and and world at the moment. So anyway, this is uh, the project he had come up with ten years ago when I had couldn't do it, and it has evolved over time. Uh, but we never kind of lost track of thinking about it, and so this seemed like a great opportunity to try to make that happen. And this is uh, it's called Sense of Place. This is what, what we refer to as the anchor site. Um, it's a it's like about 15 by 15 foot concrete cube that is assembled from 40 different sculptural pieces. So there's 40 different unique sculptures that comprise the whole, sort of like a Tetris yeah, scenario. Like Tetris. Yeah. Some people see that. Some people actually have uh, you know referenced um, you know uh, tombstones or a, a mausoleum kind of feel to it. Or and as it breaks down, which is what I'll get to. Others have seen. Nagareotsu are other kinds of ancient architecture in it as well, but any case, over the course of this year, it's still up. We just um, they all 40 pieces will disseminate from this anchor site to other sites around Los Angeles. I think about 20 when all is said and done, but in three different movements. So the first movement, if uh, you could do the next slide, please. So the first movement happened in November, and about 14 of the pieces went to five other sites um, in LA. And the, th- <coughs> the second movement just happened while I've been gone, actually. And um, that's the next slide, I think you can see what it looks like now. So another 10 or so left um, to their separate sites. So I think now we have about, we have 12 sites where they, uh, uh, where they exist in different ways. And the idea is essentially that they kind of go out to these, um, what he considers kind of significant in Los Angeles to kind of like paint a sort of travelogue or portrait of the city as a whole and all of the different ways in which they'll be engaged, or used, or <coughs> broken, or messed with, or ignored in all of those different sites. And then eventually, after the third movement, there'll be nothing left at the anchor site, and then find the final movement is where they all all will come back and reassemble. Um, and they really are having these, and with their, like, holding their histories so kind of transformed by their travels and their histories um, into that um, you know, originally sort of minimalist queue. A lot of his work riffs off ideas of middleists and modernism, turning them into um, in a more humane or kind of real uh, uh, relationships to people, to their hands, to their experiences with it. So if you go to the next slide, this is, I just cribbed this from my phone, so these aren't going to be great. But <laughs> this is uh, one of the sites, this is Santa Monica Pier, which I'm sure everybody has the image of with the Ferris wheels on right at the end there. That's actually Jose sitting on one up there. Um, and uh, you know other sites are, uh, Hollywood Forever Cemetery, Beverly Hills Courthouse, which you've seen in a million movies. But then others that are, a bit are like Griffith Park or the LA River, um, Union Station downtown, which has also been is kind of an iconic film you know, site. Um, and then others that are like sort of private houses of the modernist, you know, of the modernist history, so where he's referencing those, that, um, that architectural history as well. Um, and those have agreed to have their sites open, of course, to the public, because otherwise it wouldn't work as well as some schools where they're incorporating them as part of their um, classroom and work. So, one more slide, please. This is the last one. This is what's happened to it in Union Station in the last week. <laughs> so, um, which which is totally fine. Like, all of the things that, um, this is the best one. The, the worst one is that in one of the parks, if somebody is, or a group of somebody is, is are really wanting to get rid of it, so they keep trying to smash it. Um, which doesn't, they're concrete, so it doesn't, really happen, but they're starting to get a bit worn. we're probably going to have to. So this so, is unauthorized so? uh, I mean, we're not saying, saying please do stuff, but we're not saying no, and we're not going to take it off. Right. So, um, it, and it, in, it, the only places where we are encouraging it very right, directly are at the schools, because we want the kids to have the opportunity to, you know, they're coming up with all different things, like one's doing a, a poetry class around, it, one else is at one, at the other school, they have a, they happen to have a course in kind of an like mm-hmm. other uh, ideas of spirituality, so like a zen, they're maybe a zen garden around it, yeah, and things yeah. like that. So there'll be some, some interesting aspects there, but certainly there'll be other ones that people just don't even notice, and or they just use as a bench, or you know, however that might function uh, going forward. So that's still ongoing, and we'll see where it takes us when it all comes back.
0: Uh, Do you share those reactions on your <laughs> website? these? Um, we will. We
1: haven't we haven't called them all. We have hundreds of pictures because all the sites are sending them to us every day, so we have to kind of make it uh, look a little nicer than, than the Dropbox they're in, <laughs> but they will be there, oh, yeah. So that's another thing. Again, like as I, ma- I mentioned briefly, the website is really critical because it's essentially our archive, and, and we really try to make it so that you can get as close as possible to some experience mm-hmm. with the projects by looking through the site. So we retain all of the text and as many images and, and responses as we can, and of course um, on our social media as well. The, the billboard project, as you might imagine, over the course of two years, became a very popular hashtag for us. So that was really great as a way to gauge some responses. One of the most difficult things um, um, that I hadn't really thought as much about in advance um, about public art is that it's really hard to get um, a consistent or thorough kind of rigorous audience response. Um, we try to do, we do surveys and everything we can do whenever it's a fixed site. Or an enclosed site, I guess. Where your, where there people will be there for a while. But in general, you know, we really have to um, uh, you know ask, do a lot of outreach to get some some feel for how the projects are impacting the communities, audiences that are going there. Okay. So that's the scope of the projects I um, had the time to show you today. We so we have plenty of others, and I would you know be happy to to talk about any of them if there's any that you know or or want to hear about, but. For the moment now, we're getting close. I think we have about 10 minutes left, um, and I'd love to open the floor to questions. More questions? Yes. How long will we remain at their respective sites? So there are different times for each. So the first movement that started in November, they'll stay at those sites until they come back together, finally in May. So then this one that just moved, it'll be you know four months, I guess, then, and then the shortest one will be the. So that actually was part of the logistical juggling because some of the sites didn't want to have to, to host them for that long, and some wanted to host for longer. So trying to get all of that mapped out nicely has been kind of a nightmare, <laughs> yes. um, Just thinking about scale of your
0: audience, how many people are on your mailing list in the Los Angeles area?
1: Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, my mailing list was pretty... Enormous from the fifteen years I was at the Whitney, sure. So and but as you might also imagine, mm-hmm. more focus on on East Coast and, and Europe actually. Right. Um, so since then, I think our mailing has made about forty thousand, and I would say about half are, is LA. Yeah. So, um, but our audience, our actual physical audience, of course, is mostly LA. Although we do yeah. get yeah. a lot of. It's always very exciting to be back, um, you know, here in New York, or whatever, and have people be so cognizant of the project. You know, is doing some what's some. the largest gathering you posted uh, hmm. that would probably be the island because really? five, well yeah that was kind of a nightmare. we had like five boats you know of course we, we did it on the next to no money because that was like our second year or something like that we had five boats which seemed plenty to go back and forth throughout that time for the I think it was 250 people who RSVP'd to the time frame that way because we really wanted to try to track the numbers and then something like 3,000 people showed up and so this was like the, the whole, we were launching from the, um, the Monterey Hotel, whatever that hotel is on the bay right there, they let us use their lobby to kind of like arrange everybody and get them on boats and things like that and it got so packed, it was a fire hazard, so they had to close the doors and there was like a crowd outside freaking out, it was, it was, it was a really interesting experience but you know, I mean, of course I'm happy that so many people decided they wanted to come, but it's just those kinds of things you have to navigate in the last minute and that can be really difficult. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Um, I if you uh, could expand a little bit on like nomadism and, and sort of your approach, your concept, your okay. vision of, of how you came to that. Yeah. more on Sure. Um, I think one of the, um, the elements of what we were trying to do, and I was thinking through how land could be, you know, fill a niche in, in LA that didn't seem to be being addressed, which at the time, and there's now, see now I've said this now so many times, I can't remember if I said it in this talk or if it was just in the <laughs> podcast right before, but um, when we first started, it, there was really nobody doing this kind of work and supporting artists, working in kind of sort of non-object based uh, ways in Los Angeles to the degree that we thought that we were seeing them make the work. Now things have changed quite a bit, just in the past 10 years, not just among larger institutions in general, where they're really working harder to embrace more ephemeral work. And you have you have performa now, that, and you have a lot of different places uh, doing things like that. So, um, but originally the idea was to you know provide again an artists a place, uh, different kinds of ways to express aspects of their work, but and to and so serve the local art audience, but not be necessarily only defined by that. And so that's why we is sort of insisted from the start to try to do things outside um, the community as well and in other sites across the country. Now, this is an ongoing strategic conversation because it's actually really difficult to do um, projects all over in, in multiple different sites when you aren't um, working 24 hours a day, willing to travel all the time and don't have a family, which is where I was <laughs> when I started. But, um, it's harder, you know, it's, it's difficult for your team, or your employees to be constantly traveling yourself. And, um, so these are questions, you know, to address with the board as we move into our second five-year plan, I guess would be um, what we want it, how we want to make that. Do we want to formalize when we do things outside Do we want to make it once a year? We want to make it once every five years. It's an outside year. There's a lot of that kind of sense of how can you, can you be truly nomadic? It's a, one of the great things about a small organization is you can constantly question your mission, your intent, and if you're actually, doing something that serves the purpose that you were, you were after at the beginning and then shift accordingly, if not, so, um, yeah. um,
2: Have you conceived of, or even done yet, or is there something coming where you're working off site of the continental United States, and islands, like are you, are you going to Europe or Asia? Or a- we did a project, a
1: big, project, a huge project really, <laughs> with one of our bigs in Paris two years ago. So, yeah, in, yeah. so that was, um, that was a lucky consequence of having uh, somebody who's been a supporter of mine for a long time as a curator, um, and he's based there, being willing to get the funds because it was probably about a $700,000 project at the end of the day. It was in two different sites in Paris um, one, with this kind of historic um, Hotel Particule right on the Seine, and another in a kind of converted warehouse that was on the outskirts of the city, so two very, very different neighborhoods, different types of sites, and so on. And it was all artists from, from Los Angeles, so it was really about this kind of, um, brain was called Wasteland. Wasteland, Wasteland, yeah, so it's based on the DSL, obviously, but um, in its application to the contemporary moment, which I thought was kind of an interesting way to more obliquely think about the politics of the world at the moment. So yes, so so that was exciting, but that was many years in the kind of getting him on board. So to the point I was just making, we're gonna need to think through how we can do that in ways that don't just seem random. Because now that we have almost a decade under our belt, um, we wanna be able to understand our reasoning for why we're doing each thing, not just like, oh, this is a neat opportunity, or let's try that city because I like it. So what what are our choices and what do they mean for the organization? It's also because, uh, significantly because grants and foundations can't seem to get a grip on it <laughs> without, without us having more of that explaining why we picked mm-hmm. such and such and why we picked such and such. Even though they seem very clear to me, but um, we'll have to work on that as we go on. question. Have you select the artist that you work with and then after the project is complete, how long, what, um, what is the
0: relationship
1: with you and the artist afterwards? And then Try to bring them back for multiple projects, etc. Well, second, um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And then the second question being in LA with the film community, I know is more digital art. How do you guys come together? Because I think there's always a gap between that yeah. arena and
0: know why. So, have you, I saw you do the digital, but what is that relationship
1: yeah. as well? Um, it's funny because I think Floyd asked that same set of two questions in our interview earlier, but um, in any case, Uh, Artists, well, a lot of the artists are people I've been working with over the course of of many years. Um, I really, I've I've been doing this, you know, working directly with contemporary artists for 25 years, so there's a lot of folks that I started with uh, when they were first emerging, and they're kind of, have been sort of returning to aspects of their projects throughout that time frame. Um, it is really important for us to have a consistent, ongoing relationship with artists that we work with. Um, we bring them back. We, we more often than not do multiple things with uh, single artists, usually not on the same scale. So maybe an artist who did uh, a large scale project will then do a fun night when they have an idea they want to try out or, to, or in our talk series or things like that. So it just kind of like, because there are so many people, we of course want to support new, um, new emerging artists as well. Um, But yeah, I think you know that's. uh, I as a curator, for me, it's very important to maintain these sort of longer-term relationships because art is really a. For me, what's so exciting about it is is this constantly evolving, you know, organism for an artist's work, and it's not just like the one thing they're doing now; it's all the things they've done, all the things they will do, and that sort of um, aspect of the artist's process is one of the most exciting aspects of being a curator to me, and what we're trying to open up a little for other people to have access to as well. Then as far as the film community, you know, to be honest, there is not nearly as much um, uh, intermingling as I would like there to be, neither in a supportive way, which we would love to see, um, nor just kind of in sort of creative forces. I mean occasionally there are some collaborative projects where people will have like, you know, celebrities in their work, but I'm not sure if that's not really what I'm particularly interested in. Um, I would love to see the film industry show more financial support, frankly, for the visual arts um, because there's a weird kind of distinction there. I don't know why. And of course, there's a lot of industry money in, in LA that is involved. But it's changed somewhat. I know Michael Govan is the director of the LA County Museum of Art, has made some great inroads with some of the with relationships um, across the disciplinary and so on. And, um, and others are trying to do that too. In the back? Um, First of all, thank you for coming for, uh, to the um, Secondly, I, I'm kind of
0: curious about. Um, if you be willing to speak a little bit about your time at
2: Whitney and um, just sort of an overview of that, but also you know how that experience sort of informed your decision to lead
1: and um, you know, start and yeah. No, absolutely. I'm happy to. Um, I. Uh I worked at the Whitty from when I graduated Williams, which is where I went specifically mm-hmm. to study art history, until I founded land. So I sort of grew up there. I sort of, I quite literally did. And, um, and uh, uh, learned in both intellectually as well, tutorially. and I was lucky enough to have really great mentors um, who gave me a lot of opportunity, which I think is harder to do in big institutions now. And Whitney was always, to me, the big, small museum. Like, it had the same sort of presence as um, moment given time to me, but it, it, it always functioned and felt a little bit like a family museum. Um, it's much larger and more professionalized now, so I'm sure some of that sensibility is different, but it was an important part of why I wanted to work there, um, specifically. And um, I was, the, the, the unique aspect of what I was able, what I was allowed there, given to do there, was I was a curator uh, within the curatorial department and worked uptown with all of the uh, complexities of the large institution, physical site, as well as all the other departments and so forth. But I also ran as the director of our Midtown space, um, the Whitney Museum at Altria, which was uh, the one, the last of our five original British museums, and that was right across the street from Grand Central Station in New York, Midtown. So as you can imagine, was um, I mean we had hundreds of thousands of people through that space all the time. It was a free, open, public space in which we commissioned large-scale projects with contemporary artists. So um, Right from the beginning of my curatorial life, thinking about these sort of different publics, the sort of the deliberate um, audience that we had at the Whitney versus this kind of, um, you know, some people of course went on purpose, but a lot of it was sort of accidental encounters with the projects that we were doing in this kind of giant atrium that was also used for other things. So, um, uh, um, and uh, kind of occupied by a whole incredible diversity of people and, and, and interests. So. That to me, that was kind of, and then and then simultaneously, running the branch was a little bit like running a small um, alternative space because I managed um, the whole budget, all the whole staff, the education program and so on and so forth. So it was like learning how to run a little museum while still learning how to be at a big institution um, and a really unique experience that I was able to have to put together and I think that significantly impacted how I chose to start and run land. Um, You know, it's always been, we always say we take, we try to take the qualitative aspect of the major institution and combine it with the fluidity and and innovation of a smaller alternative space and that's our intent (coughs) to present and so that's why I think I actually really love it when people say it appears you have a huge budget because that comes from, you know, all of those rigorous processes and, and, you know, checklist and things that you have to do. At a big institution to you know fulfill all your departmental responsibilities and by applying that on a smaller scale, we're able to, I think, give some of that you know quality and that amplification to the projects. Does that answer your Yeah, question? thank you. That's really good. I okay. I'm
0: wondering what your process is for finding artists, mm-hmm. if it's um, kind of a uh, reach out to artists who's working you well idea or if
1: it's like open submissions? Well, um, as I mentioned, I have a lot of ongoing and long-term relationships with contemporary artists. One of the I mean it was such a privilege to be in New York for so long as a contemporary curator because I was able to get to know so many people and see so much artwork, especially when I was young. You can just spend all of your free time in galleries and, and at artist studios and so on and so forth, which is basically what I think. Been doing for a very long time, so um, I, I'm very comfortable. If I see any work I like, I just find out who they are, I call them up, um, obviously. <laughs> and, and, and studio visits are sort of the core of of what I love about my job. So without that, I wouldn't do it really if I wasn't able to work directly with artists. Um, but uh, we, I mean, we don't we don't have a policy for submissions. People send us things, or we'll email uh, to the to the info uh, uh, account a lot. Um, I do always eventually look at them, but depending on the volume of what we have, sometimes I also have my curatorial associate do it It's a great exercise for the team and so on and so forth. Um, but I would say more so it comes from people, things I've seen in where tra- art, uh, LA is kind of replete with like artist run spaces or these like momentary pop-up things and so on. It's a great way to get to know, um, you know some sort of newer voices uh, coming from or just trying things out, and so on. And then also, lastly, and perhaps even most importantly, artist recommendations. So other artists that I've worked with, when they suggest uh, someone to me that they think is interesting, I always take that recommendation as well. Now, I have to say, it's harder to juggle the director hat and the curator hat now than it was when I was able to be, quote, unquote, just a curator at Whitney. I have um, have less time for students than I'd like, but I still try to get as many of them in as possible. And like I said, that's sort of the heart and soul of how I do
0: it. So if there's one more question, we'll take it. But otherwise, um, does anyone want to ask?